Verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Then. We know it's the end of the barley harvest since they're thrashing the barley. So this has probably been about four weeks since Ruth and Boaz first met. And there's been lots of nights with Ruth coming home with blessings heaped on her by Boaz. Are the blessings enough? Or do you think maybe Ruth is wanting more? Love can never be satisfied with gifts. Gifts are great, but to have the giver is so much more important. Oftentimes the Lord lets us see his goodness, his greatness, his blessings, but there comes a point where we want him. We want to be in relationship with him and to have him know us. In Luke 5, Peter is fishing and Jesus has blessed him and gave him the best fishing day he ever had. But in the gift, the Lord revealed himself in a way that caused Peter to leave everything and follow him. He left the blessings to follow the blesser. Naomi has also enjoyed the blessings. She has seen the character of Boaz revealed in his gifts to Ruth. So she hatches a plan. She says, I must seek rest for you. Other versions translate it as security or a home. So now, Naomi begins to play matchmaker. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the thrashing floor. The thrashing floor. This was usually at an elevated location. There'd be an evening breeze that would blow off the Mediterranean from around four to five or sunset. The ground on the floor would be flat and packed. Many times there'd be a circular wall around the floor to contain the grain. The winnowers would have large forks and would throw the straw, the grain, and the chaff into the air and the breeze would carry away the lighter straw and chaff and the grain would fall to the floor to be gathered up. Why would Boaz want to spend the night there? One reason, protect the harvest. I used to go to the fair, I love the fair. And often if it is late, I would see 4-H kids grabbing a blanket or a sleeping bag to sleep in the stall with their sheep, their steer, or their pig. They want to protect that which they have grown. It's no different for Boaz. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Is there risk in Naomi's instruction? There's huge risk. This is a big deal. She's asking him to marry her. Up until now, he's been kind and giving but if he rejects her, if he's offended, the situation could turn for the worse. So Naomi says, take a bath, put on some nice smelling oil, and put on your best duds. She's saying, Ruth, I want you to look good. Verse 4, 
But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. I need to make something extremely clear here. The words lie down is a word that means to take a horizontal position. Like when you rest or go to sleep. The word is often used in the Bible to indicate sexual relations. That is not the case here. It is very clear that only his feet were uncovered. There's nothing in what Ruth did that was wrong behavior. It was bold behavior. It was risky behavior, but it was upright behavior. Naomi is basically saying, wait till he lies down, then quietly go in and uncover his feet. This was an ancient Near East custom that meant that Ruth was asking Boaz to be her husband. When we think of Boaz as a picture God was painting of Christ, let's look closely at what's being illustrated here. You see, God has sought us. He's pursued us. We've seen his goodness, but there comes a time when we need to respond to what he has done. Verse five, and she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother had commanded her. Ruth's walk matched her talk. If she said it, she meant it. She obeyed and she did just what she was commanded. Words are easy. Partial obedience is easy. When we ask Christ to forgive us and we invite him into our hearts, we are inviting him to come in and clean house. There have been times when I have said to Christ, cleanse me, but just go ahead and leave that back room alone. No one really sees it anyway. I'll take care of that myself. Partial obedience. Jesus asked for complete surrender. He asked us to die to the flesh and let him live. Complete obedience. Reminds me of a movie in The Princess Bride when they bring dead Wesley to Miracle Max. Inigo Montoya says he's dead. He can't talk. Miracle Max, woo-hoo-hoo, look who knows so much. It just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. In our lives, though we've been crucified with Christ, the flesh will want to live. It says, you don't really need to put me to death. Mostly dead is just fine. We can let that secret compartment of hate, unforgiveness, pride, or lust continue to breathe quietly. No one will notice. And I can tell you from my own personal experience, from my own failure, Partial obedience, allowing the flesh to live in that back room, being mostly dead, is a very miserable way to live. The solution is to die to the flesh and allow Christ's resurrection life to be our life. Paul stated it very clearly. 
I have been crucified with Christ. It's not no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Ruth shows us what true, complete obedience is. Death to her will, her desires. Whatever you say, Naomi, I will do. The NIV translates that she did everything Naomi said. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. There had been years of famine, and this year's har harvest was bountiful. All was well, so time to kick off the sandals, lay beside the fruits of his labor, and rest those tired dogs. Ruth appro approached softly. It's the same word used for when David approached Saul in the cave and cut off a piece of his garment. Ruth tiptoed over to Boaz, uncovered his feet, and lay down. I think the position at his feet has significance. It's a position of submission and humility. And she is willing to wait on the Lord's timing. Warren Wiersbe, when looking at this verse, made the statement, when you are at the feet of your Redeemer, you have nothing to fear. In our lives, there's a time to be still and wait. There's time to be patient. And Ruth lay there for several hours waiting. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. At just the right time, God woke him up. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Why did he say, who are you? It was dark. He hadn't seen her come in. And she responded by saying, I am Ruth, your maid, your servant. Her attitude towards Boaz was humble and submissive. Our attitude as we come to Christ needs to be the same. Then Ruth asked him to marry her. Ruth, rather than going to one knee with a ring, asked by reminding Boaz of his words, his prayer. Boaz had prayed in verse, chapter 2, verse 12, that Ruth might be rewarded by the Lord under whose wings she had taken refuge. And now Ruth is asking Boaz to spread his wings, same word as garment, over her. God used the same picture in Ezekiel 16 to describe his covenant, his marriage to Israel. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Can you think of a time when Jesus said he wanted to spread his wings over someone? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children at, together 
as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. And Ruth tells Boaz that he is a Goel, a family redeemer, and he had the means, the ability, and the position to redeem her. Let's think about our redemption for a minute. We were born in sin, we were lost, we needed to be restored, and what was the price to redeem us? A perfect, sinless life. Why wasn't a sheep good enough? Well, a sheep wasn't the one who committed the sin. Even God could not pay the price. God didn't owe, man owed. So the sinless life, or the life of a sinless man had to be given. But were there any perfect men walking around on this earth? Mm -mm. So God looked down on this earth and the people he loved, and he said, there's only one way. I must set aside my glory and put skin on. This is the incarnation. Makes me think of chili con carne, beans with meat. God put meat, flesh on, and came as a man. A normal man, not a man with superpowers, a man just like Adam before the fall, and he took the name Jesus and he lived his life sinless. Temptation was no less a struggle for him than it is for us. But in every situation, he died to self and yielded his will to his father. He didn't sin. He was spotless. Jesus is our Goel. He has the position the means, and the ability to redeem us. Redemption was a real transaction. It satisfies the justice of God. It pays a debt that was owed. Jesus knew that the cross was about redemption. Do you remember his last words on the cross? Tetelestai. It is finished. But tetelestai is an accounting term. When you paid off your house in Jerusalem, they stamped it tetelestai, paid in full. I like stories. Jesus knows that we often grasp spiritual truth through pictures of day-to-day -day stuff. I think that's why he told so many parables. So I'm going to tell a story that was told to me. It's an illustration used by many, and some of you have heard it before. But it does such a good job of helping us understand redemption that I think it's worth hearing again. There was a young boy who, when school got out, began working from dawn to dusk on a little sailboat. He drew pictures, he made plans, and remade plans to design the boat just as he wanted. He chose the best pieces of wood from his dad's shop, and he patiently created and built his little sailboat. This took the whole summer, and on one fall day, with his boat nestled safely in a box on the back of his bike, he rode down to the lake. He gently placed the boat in the water, and it was beautiful. It was very good, just as he dreamed. 
But the calm air that fall day was disturbed by an evening gust. And in moments, as the sailboat responded to the ill wind, it was pushed out to the middle of the lake and it was lost. At Christmas break, the young boy was looking at toys in the window on Main Street. And what did he see but his little sailboat? He went into the store and told the owner, that's my sailboat in your window. You found it. Can I have it back? The owner said, no. That's my sailboat. It was yours, but the wind blew it to my side. It's in my possession, and it belongs to me. Through tears, the boy said, but, but, but I designed it. I created it. I stitched the sails. I sanded the keel. I painted it. Everything about it shows my design. I, I love that boat. The storekeeper, the storekeeper said, there's only one way you can have it back. It was yours, but it was lost. And it became mine. You must pay the price to buy back and redeem what you created. And so he paid the price, the ransom. And as he left the store holding the boat, Oh, so close to him, he was saying, you're my boat. You're twice my boat. First, you're my boat because I made you. Second, you're my boat because I bought you. Christ paid the price. He bought back that which he created. And the transaction took place at the cross. Verse 10. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. How long did it take for Boaz to respond? Did he say, let me go home and think about this for a while? He responded immediately. When we ask Christ to make us his own, he doesn't ask for a resume. Immediately, he offers us himself. Boaz is saying, wow, it was great that you agreed to care for your mother-in-law, but it's great beyond great that you would choose to respond to the love of an older man and deny yourself a husband in his prime. What would be lost if she went for a younger man? The family name would not be carried on. Her true desire was to give love to Naomi, allow her to have, allow her to have grandchildren that would bear the family name. And Boaz says, don't worry, don't be afraid. It's the command that's used over 170 times in the Bible. God says, do not be afraid, do not fear. It comes, what leaves when we are worried or afraid. Peace leaves and faith leaves. It comes when we stop trusting, when we think that we're in a situation that maybe God doesn't truly understand or see. Let's think about this in relationship to Boaz trusting. We don't know a lot about Boaz before this, but I imagine that he might have been a little lonely a little desirable of a companion. 
But Boaz didn't stress. He didn't go on a frenzied hunt to find that companion. He was a man who trusted God, allowed his faith to guide his work, and he waited and trusted in God's timing. And at just the right time, God brought a woman into his life and placed her at his feet. And she was a woman who in the same way sacrificially gave herself to God and walked in obedience to the God who, who led her. God is a good God. We all have circumstances in our lives that we wish we could change. Sometimes we tend to think he doesn't see what is happening, but he does. We need to learn to rest, to trust, to not be afraid and worry. God in his time is able to change circumstances if it's best for us. He said, and now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. So Boaz is overcome with gratitude. Ruth, who could have had the man of her choice because of her love for Naomi and her willingness to play a role in preserving Naomi's family name, has chosen to ask Boaz to redeem her. But there's one little detail that has to be dealt with. There's another kinsman redeemer, and he's closer. For Boaz to bring this up might thwart the blessing of being married to, to this beautiful young lady. The fact that he brought up the issue that could nix the deal tells us a lot about his character. Boaz knew that God had a means in place for the widow to be redeemed in Israel. He knew that God had laid out the plan and order for that to happen. But Boaz was a normal man. I don't think what happened next reads, it happened as easily as it reads. The flesh wanted to rule in his life just like it does in ours. He had struggles and temptations too. I have to believe that at some point, the flesh tapped Mr. B on the shoulder and said, shh, don't say anything. She'll never know. Keep quiet and you get the girl. But Boaz, as we're told in 2 Corinthians, took captive the thought. He applied the cross. He chose death to the flesh and his will, and he trusted God. He was patient. He had integrity, and he did the right thing and told Ruth that there may be another in place ahead of him. Remain tonight and in the morning if he will redeem you. Good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives... I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. He says, stay. Lodge. Make this your hotel tonight. The conversation has taken place. Ruth has said why she came. Boaz has responded. Why didn't Boaz just say, go home. We'll touch base later. Boaz is a good man. He's asking her to stay as a means of protecting her. In this case, her physical protection. He was also protecting the rights of the Goel, who was a closer relative. 
In speaking of the closer relative, he said, if he is not willing. If you were Ruth and you, heard Bo, you were hearing Boaz talk, you would know by his words that your heart was foremost in his mind. Boaz is not saying, if the other guy doesn't want you, I'll take you. The Hebrew word is tob or toby. I'm not a Hebrew guy, so I think that's what it is. It's T-O-B-E. It means delight, desire, long for you. What he's saying is, if he does not delight in you, if he doesn't desire you and long for you, then I will do it. It would let her know that his desire is that she be treasured, loved, and honored above all else. I've mentioned over and over that Boaz is a picture that God painted of the great Redeemer to come, of Christ. Christ also treasures us. Over and over in scripture are the words, he delights in us. He rejoices in his bride. That's you and I. And then Boaz, having given her his assurance that he will be faithful and said, don't worry, I'll do right by you. And I am committing to do that before God. He says, sleep, rest, lie here till dawn. So she lay at his feet until morning, but he arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Before one could recognize another. That's an idiom that meant before dawn. The sun's not up yet. It's still dark. If you were driving your donkey, you had the lights on. And to protect Ruth's reputation, Boaz instructs his workers to say nothing. Can anyone remember a saying that was around in World War II regarding our lips? Loose lips sink ships. Imagine the conversations in the Bethlehem market by the veggie aisle if Boaz hadn't protected her. Gossips don't care about truth. Nothing was done that was impure or improper, but Boaz's employees respected him. And if he said no words, no words were spoken. So he protected her from harm physically. He protected her name and reputation. And now he is going to provide for her nourishment. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. The verse just says six of barley. Probably it's something that's called a sia, which would make this about 50 to 60 pounds. And he said he laid it on her like strapping on a backpack. So this was good provision. Could Ruth eat it all? Mm -mm. As we talked about last week, that which God blesses us with is given to bless others as well. She shared with Naomi and perhaps even her neighbors. God is painting a picture of himself as a provider and what agape love and giving God's way looks like. So once again, Bitter, empty Naomi sees her daughter-in-law walking up the path to her home, full and with fullness to share. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? 
Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. When Naomi asked Ruth, How did you fare? The real translation is, Who are you? I spent some time trying to figure out how that fit here. To put it in another way, I think she is saying, am I talking to Ruth the Moabitess or Ruth the future Mrs. Boaz? Ruth has found herself, though living in unfamiliar circumstances, holding a special place in the heart of two very important people in her life. What made Ruth so easy to love? She was humble, she was caring, she was selfless, she was giving, she was loyal, and a hard worker. Her character made her, made her lovable. So Ruth shows Naomi the barley, and she also tells her of Boaz's command. Do not go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Interesting choice of words. Rather than not don't go back without any grain or don't go back without any dinner. It's the same phrase that was used in chapter one. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty handed. I imagine when Naomi and Ruth first rolled into town, the Bethlehem news had a blip at five. Widow Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth, a Moabite, arrived in Bethlehem today, empty handed. No plans as of yet. The word was around, Naomi telling everyone she had a name changed to Mara, bitter. Boaz had heard it, and he wanted Ruth to experience what his mom, the Gentile prostitute from Jericho, had experienced, the grace of God through him. You and I are carriers, vessels of God's grace. His grace should flow out of us. Like Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman, telling her that grace will flow out of you like a bubbling spring. Life-giving, thirst-quenching grace for those thirsty around us. Is it our grace? Is it coming from us? What's the source? Jesus said to where everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Christ is the source. Christ is the giver. But sometimes we miss the true meaning of welling up to eternal life. We think that we come to Christ and he gives us a life that never ends. That's only a small part of it. Everyone has a life that never ends. God in his word defines eternal life. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son. Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. When we allow Christ to reign in us and obey his spirit, what bubbles out of us is not a length of life, but a person, the character of Christ himself. Naomi, the empty-handed, was experiencing the unmerited favor and provision of God in her life 
through a man named Boaz, who was by faith following God and reflecting his character. Verse 18, she replied, wait, my daughter, till you learn how, <coughs> excuse me, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. At this point, Naomi and Ruth do not know the outcome, but their confidence that Boaz will be good on his word. Do you and I know the outcome of circumstances in our life? No. Can we have confidence that our Redeemer will be trustworthy? Absolutely. What do we need to do? Rest. Trust. Wait. While Ruth and Naomi are resting from worry and anxiety and trying to make things happen, is Boaz resting? No, he's actively at work. So what can I take away from that fact? You and I are to rest, knowing that Christ is actively working to accomplish his good and perfect will in our lives. In the situation that we're talking about, Ruth and Naomi don't see what Boaz is doing. They can't observe the conversation that he's about to have with a closer relative. What Naomi and Ruth were resting in was the promise, the words that Boaz had given Ruth. As surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. You and I can rest in God's promises as well. We have a redeemer who has promised that we can take his name, be clothed in his righteousness, and be part of his family. Our redeemer's name is Jesus.